Now it's a very long time ago now, um, but I had the opportunity to spend three months working as an intern for a cardiothoracic surgeon in Brisbane. It was a very exciting team to be a part of, and, and there was Dr. Andrew Clark, and he would take patients to theatre and he'd do coronary artery bypass grafts and, and paediatric open heart and cardiac transplants. Um, of course, I was not allowed anywhere near the operating theatre. I was the intern on the ward. And in the morning, Dr. Clark would take his registrar, Olivia, and they'd go to uh, theatre and they'd save lives and do amazing things. And I'd sit there and I'd do all the paperwork on the ward. And the morning ward round, he'd, he'd wander around and he'd communicate all the, the plans for all the patients to the registrar and discuss it with the registrar. And I'd follow along with the charts and I'd listen up to, to what the plan was going to be. Um, and so there was no sort of exciting stuff from that perspective. <clears throat> And there was, a very, there was a very hierarchy kind of approach to the team. And it worked the other way as well. So if nurses had concerns about a patient, they'd tell me. If I had concerns, I'd tell the registrar. If the registrar had concerns, she'd tell Dr Andrew Clark. And I remember one day, one of the allied health staff must have broken protocol and she talked direct to the registrar about something. And Olivia, who was always friendly, pulled me aside and with a smile on her face that said, I'm not joking about this, she said, Alon, your purpose on the team is to spare me the ordeal of discussions with Allied Health. And I thought, OK. <laughs> um, and I thought to myself as I, as I looked at this passage that we're covering this morning, what an amazing blessing it is that we have direct access to the Father, that we talk to him and that he desires to listen. He desires that we talk to him and he answers our prayers. <clears throat> Uh, this sermon was actually supposed to be delivered seven weeks ago as part of the sermon that was Matthew 6, 1 to verse 18, but unfortunately that was far too big a chunk to bite off at one time, and, and so we had to delay. And of course, the following Sunday, Timothy was born, and so it's been seven weeks now since we had a look at the original context of this passage, so we'll recap a bit of that as we go through. <clears throat> but first, let's open in prayer. Our Father... May your name be honoured here today. We marvel at your grace that you would provide us with your word, that you would make yourself known to us. But our joy is greater still. We have so much joy that you would listen to us and you would care for us and that you would invite us to talk to you. Thank you for the gift of prayer. Equip us through your word this morning that we might tune our practice of prayer to that which is pleasing in your sight. Free us from hypocrisy, teach us how to pray, and grant us forgiving hearts, we ask. All glory be to your name. Amen. <clears throat> so in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus begins the famous Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who were here last week, we actually read chapters 1 all the way through to 7, and so the context should be somewhat familiar to you. Jesus expounds a righteousness that is both radical and beautiful, a righteousness that requires far more than the confirmation of our actions, but the transformation of our hearts. For the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, it's kind of like, it's like a hungry man, a famished man, who's reading the menu at Mueller Brothers, and he's there and he's going, this is it, this is what I want, this is righteousness that I've been seeking for. The trouble is that, that you and I, we still suffer from the corrupted desires of our flesh. And so even when we approach Matthew chapter 5, with a desire to please God, a righteous and pure desire, 
Uh, we nevertheless find our aspirations to serve God corrupted by our fallen desires, which continually seek to serve and to honour and to please ourselves. <clears throat> One writer pens these words. We human beings are a strange lot. We hear high moral injunctions and we glimpse just a little of the genuine beauty of perfect holiness. And then we prostitute the vision by dreaming about the way others would hold us in high esteem if we were like that. The demand for genuine perfection loses itself in the lesser goal of external piety. The goal of pleasing the Father is traded for its pygmy cousin, the goal of pleasing men. And so as Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount, he warns us staunchly against religious hypocrisy. And this is largely what we looked at seven weeks ago. He brings three examples. That of giving, praying and fasting. Three things that can be corrupted from acts of service to acts of self-service. Do not give to be seen by others, he warns us. Do not pray to be seen by others. Do not fast to be seen by others. And it's in this context that we find today's extended teaching on prayer. There are three verses that relate to giving. There are three verses that relate to fasting, but there are 11 verses that relate to prayer. Jesus doesn't just discuss how we can hope to avoid hypocritical, hypocritical practices of prayer, but he also takes this opportunity to, to give us some more extended teaching to advance his disciples a little in the school of prayer. Now, some of you might be sitting there this morning thinking, prayer, how hard can it be? And the answer is, you're right, it's not very hard at all. I remember praying from when I was a young age. I remember getting my toy dolphin and going out into the backyard and putting it on the grass and turning on the sprinkler and praying that God would turn it into a real dolphin. And as I look back on it, I'm very pleased that God uh, demonstrates discretion as to which prayers he answers and how. Uh, my point is this, praying is, is intuitive, but praying the prayers that please our Father, pray, praying appropriately, is not so intuitive. Jesus' disciples were not naive to prayer. But in Luke chapter 11, they approach Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. This is something that we need to learn from Christ. And so I hope that as we come here this morning, we're going to approach a familiar passage. We're going to approach what I hope is a familiar discipline for us, but we're going to approach it hoping to learn more and to grow in this. I suspect that we are all still, in a way, infants in the discipline of prayer. This morning, we're going to look at verses 5 through to 8 first, and we're going to consider how not to pray, and then we're going to turn our attention to the following section the Lord's Prayer and consider how to pray and also consider the interaction between our habit of forgiveness and our practice of prayer. So let's begin. How not to pray. You might assume that I don't need to tell you how not to pray and then if you do not know how not to pray then you won't pray that way, right? Wrong. Unfortunately we often unknowingly, uh, ignorantly gravitate towards uh, unhealthy patterns of prayer. And as we consider the larger context of this passage, namely a rebuke of self-centred religion, well, it becomes almost immediately apparent when we think about it that prayer can be very easily corrupted by religious hypocrisy. We can end up praying, prayer, praying prayers that are actually not pleasing to our Heavenly Father. Reading it again. And when you pray, 
you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And in the context, that reward is the acclaim of men rather than the praise of God. As I was coming home yesterday, oh, Friday, I noticed the sign for the mayor's prayer breakfast, and I think partly I'm pleased that such an event exists, but I could only imagine what the temptation is for those who go there to be praying not to God for his approval, but to be praying in front of others. I assume there's a, there's a bunch of important pastors and the mayor and other people there, and there's very, there'd be a great temptation, I suspect, to be seduced to pray up to those around you rather than pray to God. And you go, oh yeah, I can see your point, Alon. Prayer could be turned into a form of hypocrisy. But you know, you don't have to be gathered with the mayor or, or, or the elite or anything to turn prayer into hypocrisy. You rock up at core group. There's half a dozen people there. You bow your heads for a time of prayer. One or two people have already prayed and, and the bloke beside you is praying for a sick family or a work colleague who doesn't believe but you're off, you're daydreaming, your mind's gone. And then he says amen, and everything has that little silence. And you go, oh, you pay a little bit more attention, who's going to pray next? It occurs to you that you haven't prayed yet. Oh, you think, well, I better pray something, I better show these guys that I'm actually participating in the meeting, I better show them that I'm spiritual. You straighten up and you harness your religious vocabulary and you get your, your lofty notions ready, and off you go. Almighty Father, we also want to pray for. All the while, you're hoping that you're not actually praying for something that's already been prayed for while you were daydreaming, because that would be embarrassing, right? You wouldn't want them knowing what inattention that you have been practicing so far in the meeting. You wouldn't want them knowing that you've been daydreaming. I'm not sure if this scenario is familiar to you. I hope it's not. I hope this is, this is nothing of your habits Uh, but I suspect that it might strike a little close to home for some of you. Maybe not, maybe I'm the only one who's had this experience. Um, And look, if if this isn't your experience, praise the Lord that you're doing well. But I suspect that if we are honest and if we honestly self-examine our habit of prayer and our habit of approaching the Father in this way, I suspect that not a few of us would be confronted by the shallowness of our devotion at times. We can be more concerned that the person beside us doesn't know that we're disengaged from the prayer. Um, And so we offer a prayer. The words are right, the tone is right, the cadence is right, but the heart is all wrong. We can be more concerned about what men think than about what God thinks. And we know that nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows exactly where our heart is at when we approach prayer. Essentially, we can be more concerned to maintain a facade of righteousness before men than we are concerned to seek true righteousness before God. If this has been you or is you, then we can be thankful that we have a forgiving Father in heaven. And I think it's always worth remembering that. What are we to do? Uh, The first thing to note is Jesus doesn't instruct us to completely abandon public prayer. Uh, I noticed there was a little bit of shyness about approaching the microphone for our public prayer this morning. I thought, oh, someone's read ahead in the passage and they're not going to pray. (laughs) Um, But Jesus doesn't actually say, do not pray publicly together. Um, Indeed, we are instructed to, and the biblical example is that we will. But he doesn't want us to pray to be seen by men. 
And so he tells us to learn to pray in the secret place. We ought to be devoting ourselves to private prayers so that our public actions are no more than an authentic overflow of what our private devotion already is. We need to seek to ask ourselves the question, have I taught myself to love the secret place of prayer? Have I taught myself to seek his face, to have communion with the Father, to praise and petition and to repent and rejoice and to do all of this in earnest? It's a lot easier to learn this in the secret place of prayer than it is up there. Join with me in praying that God will take us further into the realm of of prayer, pure prayer, which is pleasing in his sight. So verses 5 and 6 warn us of the temptation that can uh, trip us up in private prayers. Verses 7 and 8 build on this warning against proliferating uh, insincere words and empty phrases. There's a great danger that that when one prays publicly, uh, we can be tempted to sound pious. Some people even switch from from really common slang to King James Version English. Um, And I know that some people that's just unintentional because that's how they grew up praying and and that's just a carryover. Um, But there can be the temptation to sound pious and to sound pious before other people. It can also be a way... uh, It can also be a problem even in our private prayers when we have the wrong idea about prayer and we assume that somehow God cares more about our word count than our heartbeat. Jesus calls this idea for what it is. This is pagan thinking. This is what the Gentiles do. This is not us. This is not Christianity. This is not authentic Christianity, at least. So we need to take care that we do not contaminate our private prayer life even with this idea that empty words are important to God. Prayer is not just lip-syncing what we know we should be praying for. God doesn't look at your work count. He looks at your heart. I want us to consider for a second Matthew uh, 9.38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Uh, that reading's from the NIV. And, and it translates the word deathete with the word pray. And it's not a bad translation, but the trouble is we don't actually have a great English equivalent for this word. This is a passionate asking. This is, a, this is an asking that springs from the heart. Uh, the ESV tries to use two words to try and capture the meaning. So it says, pray earnestly. Again, sort of a bit lacking in the English language. The NASB actually gives up on contemporary English altogether, and it reaches for a word that most of us have probably forgotten, beseech, to passionately, urgently, fervently implore. And this is what prayer is. It is, it is a heart interaction with God. Jesus warns us not to pray like the pagans, with large volumes of empty repetition. He's not telling us here that we're only allowed to pray short prayers. He elsewhere encourages the practice of lengthy, persevering prayer. He himself gave himself both to pithy short prayers and to extended vigils of prayer that lasted all night. But our prayers must be earnest. They must be heartfelt. We cannot think that we can come before God to offer him our insincerity. So how then should we pray? In God's grace, Jesus teaches us how we ought to pray. Jesus offers us here a template prayer. I say template because I think, particularly given the context, that we we should be careful about ensuring that this doesn't just become a prayer that we pray with empty ceremonialism and repetition, meaningless repetition. 
Um, that said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying this prayer verbatim um, if one prays it from the heart. And I'm, I'm quite thankful that I was taught this prayer. Um, I'm quite thankful to God for those who did teach me this prayer. Because then it comes to mind very easily when I want to pray it word for word or when I want to use it to instruct longer extended times of prayer. Um, the second reason that I call this a model prayer is because, uh, in a way, it's a bit of a bare basics of prayer. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about prayer. This is one occasion. This is a great place to start. But our prayers should be further broadened by, by I guess, the, the larger corpus of Scripture. Um, <clears throat> knowing it to be a big issue, I, Jesus, he enrolls his disciples, if you would, in Prayer 101, and he says, I'll grow you from here. You know, we'll start with the basics and we'll go from there. <clears throat> You'll notice that there are many themes that are common in prayers within Scripture that aren't actually represented in, in this prayer. There's one thing that's not explicitly addressed in the passage, but it's almost uh, assumed, and it's worth just reminding ourselves of this before we go into a discussion on the Lord's Prayer, Um, but namely, God is both capable to answer our prayers and inclined towards our prayers. And you say, oh yes, I knew that already, Alon. And yet sometimes I think our practice of prayer can fall short of our theology of prayer. It was only this week that I, uh, at family devotion time, I asked for prayer for a colleague who's been diagnosed with cancer, and it's metastatic cancer, and it's incurable. And so my daughter prayed, Lord God, I pray that they be healed. And I caught myself thinking, no, that's not what I was asking for prayer for, because it's, it's terminal, we can't cure it. I'm like, well, yes, we can't, that's the point. That's why we're praying to God, and obviously we want to pray for that person's salvation as well. It's important, though, not to limit God's potency when we come to considering prayer. <clears throat> we must ensure that our knowledge of the power of God, of God's sovereignty, actually propels us further into prayer rather than takes us away from prayer into some sort of uh, relaxed fatalism. So let's examine this prayer together. The first thing that we must learn is how to address God, and that's how this prayer starts. Now, you may think this is somewhat elementary, but I believe that there's a lot to be gained here. The prayer begins, Our Father in Heaven. And to the original Jewish audience, this would have been a very audacious way to address God. For them, God was high and lofty and altogether distant. They began their prayers with Sovereign King or Lord of the Universe, not Abba Father. They dared not even actually speak his name. And yet the disciples here are to call him Father. And this captures the intimacy between us and God that we, have a, that we have gained through the work of Christ. The Father is not distant. There is relationship there. As you come before him in prayer, as you come before him in prayer, we can rejoice in the fact that there is a relationship and he is directly hearing us. Today, we find it perhaps easier to appreciate the intimacy of God than did the first century Jew. We need to make sure that we also appreciate the two words that then follow, our Father in heaven. We need to make sure that we don't forget what the first century Jew knew, namely that God is high and lofty. He is altogether distant. And as we come before him to pray, we need to ensure that we appreciate both the intimacy and the transcendency of God He is there. He's made himself available to us. He loves us. He has relationship with us. 
And yet he is and he remains the creator of the entire universe. His authority spans the chasms of the universe. The chorus of his praises is going to ring out for all eternity. If we learn to approach God as both our Father and in heaven, then we're going to learn to approach him with both intimacy and reverence. There's something further to be learned from this address. And I think, again, something that we can frequently overlook in the 21st century. We are not here instructed to pray, my Father in heaven. We today are so conditioned by the individualism that's rampant in society um, that we can, we can bring that into our faith. <clears throat> and we can, at times, fail to appreciate the corporate dimensions of our faith. We would sooner pray, my Father, give me my daily bread. Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father, give us our daily bread. The Lord's model of prayer should be pushing us beyond the individualism that our society pushes upon us. So then, after we've learnt to address God appropriately, we're ready to bring our first petition. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And this is a great way to start prayer. We are to honour and to revere God. We are to consider him holy. We are to pray this both as an acclamation of worship but but also as a petition. We are to pray that his name might be hallowed within our hearts, that we might hold him in reverence and awe, that we might love him and worship him. We are to pray that his name might be hallowed within our church, that as as a congregation we are fixing our eyes on him, contemplating his glories and giving him praise. We're to pray that his name be hallowed, full stop. We are to pray that everywhere his name be hallowed, that everywhere where men presently use his name as a curse or a joke, where comedians cast slurs, where drunkards profane, we are to pray that his name be hallowed and the knee shall bow and people shall give glory to God. Then comes the second petition. We are to pray your kingdom come. To understand this, we need to understand that God's kingdom has arrived in the coming of Jesus. It is arriving as the Spirit works to transform lives and it will finally and ultimately and wonderfully arrive when Jesus comes again. And so this petition has uh, both a present focus and a future eschatological expectation, a, a second coming expectation. In this sense, the kingdom of heaven, uh, or the kingdom of God, refers to the saving reign of Christ. This is, in a way, distinct from God's sovereign rule over the entire universe. And so when Jesus says to someone that they are not far from the kingdom, it doesn't mean that they are presently beyond the realm of God's sovereign control over the universe, but beyond the realm of his saving grace. So we ask ourselves, do we hunger and thirst for the expansion of God's kingdom? Do you desire that Christ's rule in the hearts of those who do not yet know him? If you do, then you're going to pray this one quite naturally. You will desire that that presently the saving, life-giving reign of Jesus continues to advance in this world. And you'll simultaneously cast your gaze forward and long for the day when Jesus will return. You'll cry out with all the other saints through history, Come, Lord Jesus. For it's with his second coming that this prayer will be ultimately fulfilled. 
Come Lord Jesus has been the cry of the church through the ages. It will continue to be so until the trumpet sounds and we hear a loud voice proclaim, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelations 11.15 Now the third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This petition evidently is, is in a way similar to the preceding petition, your kingdom come, but it is more expansive in outlook. God is building his kingdom, and we pray your kingdom come, and we expect that his will will be done within that domain of his kingdom, but we don't stop there. We also pray your will be done, not just in the lives of the saints, not just within the community of the church, but everywhere. We want to see righteousness cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and so we pray to God for the society around us. I'll quote Stuart Bailey from just before the service. He said something along the lines of, the twisted agenda of our politicians has been eminently on display this week or something to that effect. We need to be praying for that society. We need to be praying that the will of God be done broadly in this nation and in this world. We need to be praying against abortion, against euthanasia. We need to be praying for the disadvantaged. We need to be praying against domestic violence. We need to be praying for the vulnerable in our community. We need to be praying for the alien and the strangers because God is a God who loves justice. That is his will, and we want to see that broadly within our world. Even now, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So these are the first three petitions that the prayer starts with, and they relate to God, his name, his kingdom, his will. The next three petitions relate to us at least to our relationship to God. Give us this day our daily bread. This is a prayer for our daily needs. In the first century, a labourer would live rather hand-to-mouth. He'd go to work, he'd earn his money, he'd buy his bread, he'd go home, he'd eat. Um, So daily bread was representative of what I need today. We need to remember to lift up our daily needs. Now, it's worth noting that a labourer doesn't have to ask God for his daily bread. He can presume that he is strong enough or skilled enough that he can go out and he can earn his money and he can earn his bread and he can go home and he can be satisfied and he can go out every day of his working career in that spirit of self-dependence until it is, until his strength fails. And then you will find him crying out to God for his daily bread. I think to an extent... This is sometimes how we pray, and I think to an extent, this is because it's sometimes how we think. We think, I've got the skills, I've got the abilities, I'm going to provide my own way, and God will be my last resort. God will be my crisis day plan. But Jesus teaches us that we are daily dependent on God, and he instructs us to pray accordingly. Indeed, we are daily dependent on God, whether we're strong or not. God is the one who gives us strength. And just as our, heavenly, as our earthly fathers might provide for their children, even when they don't ask for the provision, the children are still dependent. But we should be learning to both acknowledge, to pray for, and to honour God for the provision he gives us, rather than just presuming upon it. We're needy creatures, 
but luckily our God is abundantly able to meet all of our needs. The fifth petition then reads, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, we're not talking about your home loan or your car, okay, Um, or your credit card. We're talking about sin. And we need to ask the question, is confession and repentance part and parcel of our regular prayers? I'd add to that the question, is forgiveness part and parcel of our everyday life? Some of us, um, thankfully, have become very good at lifting our physical needs to God. That is as it should be. But it's my creeping suspicion that we're often a lot slower to learn to lift our spiritual needs before God. Are they any less important? No, of course they're not. A prayer for bread is a prayer for the needs of the day. A prayer for forgiveness is a prayer that pertains to eternity, the salvation of our souls. Now, to ask for God's forgiveness is one thing. It requires that we acknowledge our sin and our need, and that's a big step for us. Um, but to offer forgiveness to others is quite another thing. It, goes, it just goes so against our natural tendencies that want to hold on to a grudge. It requires that we have, I guess, dwelt at the foot of the cross, contemplating the magnitude of the debt that we bring, the magnitude of the debt that has already been cancelled by our gracious Saviour. It requires that the corresponding gratitude that we have then towards Jesus, we extend to others, that we drop anger and that we drop bitterness. It's very hard to have both gratitude and grudge nursed together. Now, as we struggle with the practice of forgiveness, we might read, forgive us our debts, even as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we might reason to ourselves that, I guess this is, preferable that we forgive the others. I guess this is normative most of the time, um, but maybe it's not altogether necessary. Maybe God will permit me to nurse my grudge another day or another week or another month, maybe another year if it's a really big grudge. Uh, but Jesus anticipates our hardness of heart, and so at the end of the prayer, he actually uh, he expands in, on this petition in a unique way. He reinforces it, saying, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So if as you read the Lord's Prayer, you get to verse 12 and you think to yourself, goodness, this can't mean what I think it means. Well, you get down to verse 14 and Jesus spells it out very clearly for you. You can't miss it. Yes, This is, as he says, this is what he is teaching. This is hard for us to swallow, for those of us who desire cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer would put it. Jesus covers the same thing uh, at a later occasion, also recorded in the book of Matthew, in chapter 18, in the parable of the unmerciful servant. And I think it's probably worth just uh, quickly reading it in full. Rob, are you able to keep the thing ticking over because I always lose my place Um, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants when he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents and since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had 
and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart, from your heart. While it's difficult to practice, forgiveness is quintessential to our faith. There is no such thing as the unforgiving Christian, my friends. It is counterintuitive to who we are. As we have received forgiveness, so we offer forgiveness. Those who are meek, who are poor in spirit, and who look to the example of Christ, they shall learn to be habitual forgivers. Those who seek to follow in the footsteps of Christ, they will learn to cry out, Father, forgive them even as their master Jesus cried out such on the cross. We learn to forgive not once or twice, but 70 times 7, as Jesus would say. Not just saying it, but meaning it. Letting the grudge drop, not harbouring that resentment. Is there ongoing hatred or bitterness or avoidance? Is there something that you're still holding on to against a brother? We need to ask, have I then really forgiven them? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Finally, we come to the sixth petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or from the evil one, both translations possible. I'm reminded afresh of what a blessing it is to have this model of prayer because I remember looking at this prayer a few years ago and being convicted that that this particular petition is underrepresented in my general pattern of prayer. And as I looked at this passage again to prepare the sermon for this Sunday, I was convicted again in exactly the same way. Unfortunately, our patterns of prayer can deteriorate over time and having the Lord's Prayer is a wonderful boon that, that brings us back into line. I must also say that it is really a, it, it is a privilege to be able to pray with you guys as a church. And, and as I looked at this prayer a few months ago, and as I've been listening to the prayers that we're praying, I do believe that the scriptures are informing our prayers. And I do believe that, that we as a church at Eastgate, um, you know, we, we haven't got everything figured out. Uh, but we are disciples in the school of prayer. We're seeking God to transform us in this way. So do be encouraged as well, church. I've lost my place. Um, As disciples of Christ, we, we cannot be content to perpetually err 
knowing that we have the promise of forgiveness. It is wonderful that we do have the promise of forgiveness. But as we come to know Christ and appreciate something of his righteousness, sin becomes so abhorrent to us that we not only plead that God would cleanse us of the sin that soiled us yesterday, but we also plead with him that by his grace we might avoid the sin that lies in wait to soil us tomorrow. I think if we fail to to pray such prayers, it is, in a sense, an indication of, of an element of spiritual immaturity. Do we think that we can resist the evil one in our own strength? Do we think that we can escape the, the snares and the traps of sin which, which seem to trap everyone these days, as they always have? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God is there and he is inviting us to ask, to pray to him that we will avoid temptation. Now, as we get to the close of this prayer, I want to pick up on something that we mentioned at the beginning for fear that possibly it's already been forgotten, okay? Um, Again, as we said, Western society is individualistic, but Christianity not so. I want to take this opportunity uh, to remind us that these last three petitions that we so often pray for ourselves, they're group petitions, they're corporate petitions. We should not merely care that our own needs are provided for. Give me this day my daily bread. No, Jesus teaches us to consider the needs of others above our own needs. And so we pray, give us this day our daily needs, our daily bread, sorry. We should not merely be concerned that we ourselves are brought to the foot of the cross where we shall find forgiveness. We should be concerned about our brothers and sisters as well. We should be praying that God gives us all penitent hearts, leading us to the cross, blessing us with forgiveness. So we pray, forgive us our debts. And we certainly shouldn't be unconcerned about the sins that lie in wait to trap our brothers and sisters in Christ. We care for them. We love them. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer that we pray privately, but it is a prayer that we pray with a corporate heart. In putting this all together then, <clears throat> I want us to remember that an acceptable prayer, prayer, contrary to popular belief, is not intuitive. We need to be schooled by Christ that we may pray as he would have us pray. Prayer is not an act to be done before men. Prayer is not a poem that will be heard because of its words or phrases. Prayer may or may not be audible, but it is always visceral. It always rises up from deep within us as our heart cries out to God. And so we shut ourselves in the bedroom or we lock ourselves in the car or we hide away in the shed and we get down on our knees before our Father. Our Father collectively, the one who is in heaven, the one who is intimate and the one who is transcendent. And as we consider his, his glory, how, cannot we, how can we but pray, hallowed be thy name? And as we consider his mercy, how can we but pray, your kingdom come? As we consider his justice, his goodness, how can we but pray, your will be done? We lift our needs to him because we know that he loves us. We pray to him for forgiveness because we know that we have not loved him. 
We forgive others because we have been forgiven by him, because we've tasted the gratitude that comes from that. And we pray that we may not fall into sin because we have tasted something of his righteousness and we hunger and thirst for more. And sin has become absolutely abhorrent to us. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, I want us to devote ourselves to prayer. In closing, I'm actually going to ask us to stand. I'm going to read through the Lord's Prayer a phrase at a time. And I'm going to give you just a moment to reflect on it and to pray it. So... Let's bow our heads. Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. but deliver us from evil. Amen. Please stay standing as we sing And Can It Be.